It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz. Thanks for joining us. Um, I'm going to be uh, talking a little bit about the news, highlighting the stupid, because there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And then we're going to phone a friend. This time, it's uh, this is going to be a fun conversation, I'm sure. It's with Tom Shalou. You know Tom as a stand-up comic, as somebody who's been in, I don't know how many different shows along the way. He, he was the uh, opening act for... Um, for Jim Gaffigan along the way. You may have seen him out there on the road, but most importantly, he you know him from Gutfeld. You know him from the quiz show that was on Fox Nation. Just a funny, funny guy. Good guy. Wrote a great book. Tom Shalhoub. We're going to have a little conversation about his growing up in Massachusetts and sort of the wonder years type of thing. It's really, really a neat story. We look forward to talking with, uh, with uh, Tom. So I want to give a little hot take on the news. And, you know, when we're recording this, I don't know what the conclusion is of the Durham trial. The Durham trial obviously relates to the Clinton campaign. Uh, Hillary Clinton herself actually greenlighting and putting forward this misinformation in a campaign in order to manipulate a campaign by planning stuff with the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigations, with the Department of Justice. The, the, the scheme works like this. They basically go out, they plan a story, then they go to the news media and say, hey, the FBI is investigating this, giving it credence and getting all kinds of news coverage. Now, Durham, who is the U.S. attorney from Connecticut, who was given this uh, special designation by Attorney General Barr in order to continue to pursue this, you know, he's bringing forward this prosecution did Sussman lie or not lie to the FBI? That's the question before the jury. But the jury, the, the thing I want to highlight, again, when I'm recording this, I don't know the conclusion of this, this, this trial. But here's what's odd about this. And uh, Jonathan Turley, really the uh, Georgetown professor, Fox News contributor, super smart attorney. What he's highlighted, which I think we should all be concerned about, is that this trial is being brought forward in Washington, D.C. Now, nine out of ten people who voted voted in that campaign uh, for uh, Hillary Clinton as opposed to Donald Trump. But as Jonathan Turley points out, it's one thing to vote for somebody. I mean, you would hope that everybody would vote. Certainly a huge portion of the population would vote. But it's a whole nother thing when you're a donor, I, I think if we objectively looked at it, no matter what side of the aisle, you may be a supporter, you may have voted, but the next step up in terms of your commitment to that uh, that uh, candidate or that way of thinking or you have a vested interest is when you make a donation. Now, I don't care if it's $25, $2,500. Um, you know, a lot of people who make a $2,500 donation twenty is like making a $25 donation. But there's still another level of commitment. And that's crazy about this trial there uh, that's going on is that three of the jurors, three of them are donors to the Clinton campaign. And yet the judge is allowing that to happen. And the other thing that we found out about is that the, one of the, the, uh, the daughter of Sussman, the person who's on trial actually plays sports with one of the jurors' daughters. So, again, I think there's pressure at home in a jury that's not sequestered when your daughter plays whatever sport it is with the person on trial. And yet, the again, the judge allowed this to happen. The other thing that Turley uh, mentioned and, and talked about, uh, he did so when I was guest hosting for uh, Sean Hannity, which I was very grateful for, he's written about this and talked about this, is that how different this case is being done. The, the rulings by the judge, which happen all the time, do we allow this, do we not allow that? Is, is it in favor of the prosecution, of the defense, and the motions that are made? 
it is such a totally different standard. And again, same charge, same jurisdiction, same total different application of these laws compared to General Flynn. If you remember, General Flynn was up on a charge. Did he or did he not lie? Judges treated this totally different. Not from my point of view, but from Jonathan Hurt, uh, Turley's uh, point of view. Again, I look, by the time this podcast may come out, we may have a, a conclusion one way or the other. But it, you know, I, I think it's interesting to call balls and strikes before you have a conclusion and try to blame something later. But I just wanted to highlight with you because it does seem a bit odd. All right. Time to bring on the stupid because, you know what, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. Well, this first one kind of pains me a little bit. And again, I hope, uh, you know, when things stupid things happen with Democrats, I highlight those. But when stupid things go on with Republicans, I'd like to think that I highlight those. I'm really concerned about uh, somebody who's been very friendly with uh, Representative Madison Cawthorn. It, you know, it's just a sad situation to see uh, sort of the rise and then the fall. And look, people lose elections. People do stupid stuff. Young, talented person. I'm not going to dive into all the reasons why the good people of North Carolina uh, decided to vote a different way. But what I think is stupid, what I think is the reaction, the knee-jerk reaction after the election, is how Madison Cawthorn is approaching this idea that we should be pursuing dark MAGA. Dark MAGA means, hey, let's go after all these Republicans that he disagrees with. I... I don't think that's going to go very far. I think that's kind of different than Ronald Reagan's approach to Reagan's 11th Amendment. Thou shalt not speak ill of another Republican. I'm not saying you don't voice concerns about policy. I think that's a legitimate thing. When you disagree with somebody on policy or a principle, I think that I need to be flushed out. But the way it was presented by Madison Cawthorn that, hey, we're going to get after dark MAGA and we're going to just take down these people. I, I don't know that that's productive. I think um, probably the constituents there in North Carolina that he did represent, he's still in Congress, but that he did represent, they're probably much more appreciative if he takes the fight to the Democrats. And again, raise the level of discourse and let's get into policy and not make it so personal. That's the difference. You make it personal, you start to lose credibility and people, you know, get in the fighting mode start making it about policy and how we're going to make people's lives better then i think you can be successful that's why i think uh, what cawthorn is proposing to do is right there on the borderline and over the line actually was stupid the other thing i wanted to highlight and you've seen this this happened a little while ago but nina jankowitz who was on the disinformation governance board she was the one that was going to highlight this she's the one that was out there on tiktok singing and doing all this silly stuff and Less than a month after it was created, uh, they're taking that thing down. What I saw was a clip of her appearance on CNN to complain about how the board was taken down by right-wing disinformation. And I got to tell you, that's one of the stupidest things. I just started laughing like, oh my gosh, you totally don't get it, do you? You just totally don't get the whole idea of the First Amendment and free speech and and the idea that the government would be the subjective one to take down this free speech. And and by the way, she had participated in this too with her comments on Trump and, and uh, Russia collusion and all these things. I just, the irony of this just absolutely cracks me up. So anyway, for what that's worth, that's the stupid this week. And there's certainly more candidates. All right, time to bring on a friend here. We're going to call... Tom Shalhoub. It's just a great guy. He wrote a great book. Uh, we're going to have a good discussion with Tom. So let's call up Tom Shalhoub. This sounds like the best telephone in the world. You know, it is amazing how I dialed you on my old you know, rotary dial and you just picked right up, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. That's the way we do things. We're the Fox News family. Have you seen that? Have you seen that YouTube video where... They give these millennials a chance to dial the telephone, and they, they cannot figure out how to dial. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. Yeah. It's it's quite amazing. Um, but then again, they get us back because then we don't know how to, you know, get this TikTok thing figured out. 
turn on the television. Better call a 13-year-old to try to figure out, television? What the heck's a television? You mean stream something on your phone? Cast it? How do you? Yeah, no kidding. Life's changed, Tom. Yeah, that's the way it is. Uh, You and I are very similar in age. And the reason I know this is because I actually read your book, Mean Dads. It's it's a good book. It resonated with you. You sent me a nice note. Uh, you know, you're an old school guy. A lot of people will send a text or whatever. I got something in the mail from you. <laughs> yeah, I went and bought a stamp and, <laughs> and I invested in forever stamps. And thank goodness I did because, wow, you have to finance your way through a book of stamps these days. Yeah, especially good now with inflation the way it is. The people who did the forever stamps, you're doing well. Hey, the future is stamps, folks. <laughs> stamps, electric Rail cars, uh, you know, the little ones that you make at home. Uh, these are all green stamps. These are all things that I know you're familiar with. Yeah, people don't have no idea what they're talking about, the green stamps. But I, And I'm not, I'm too young for the green stamps, but my parents did have them, and we still had them in a drawer when I was young. And I always used to wonder what they were, but, you know, they never, they never amounted to anything. Yeah, we had mounds of them, and I, I, I just remember my parents having all these green stamps. But... I digress. Look, I, I'm so glad that we uh, that you're joining me here on this podcast, Tom, because um, you just you're an exceptionally funny guy, and you know we're somewhat similar in age. You grew up on the East Coast. I grew up. You're Massachusetts. I, yep. I was California, Arizona, Colorado, and and then I went to school uh, to go to school in Utah. And so I'm kind of out west, but. You know, when you wrote that book, it just brought me back to, you know, that show, The Wonder Years. Yeah. Which was Kevin Arnold on The Wonder Years was much older than I was. Well, much, a few years. Um, but I really, really, it's like one of my favorite shows of all time. And when I read your book, it just harkened back to those good old days. That's what people of that era, they read my book and they say, oh, it reminds me of growing up in the 50s. And then I, I was born in 66. So then... The 60s generation says, oh, that's just my, you know, Gen X uh, lifestyle. And then people who were born as late as the, as, you know, late 70s, early 80s, they, it resonates with them as well. It just, when we hit this kind of digital culture in the late 90s, that's where things, that's where, you know, people stopped living their lives outdoors, going into the woods, getting bit by ticks, you know, all the wonderful things we did as kids. Yeah, no, I was talking to a few people like Sean Duffy and others, and we were talking about, yeah, the good old days when you throw dirt clods and you had army men and you climbed trees and yeah. and you weren't tethered. John Roberts and I were talking about this and, and about, you know, trying to raise kids, you try not to, you don't want them tethered to the electronics 24-7, although without electronics, nobody would be listening to this podcast. Uh, and, you know, for the 12 people that do, I want to make sure that they can listen to it crystal clear. It's a constant battle. I'm always railing against devices. And yet, you know, I probably post uh, uh, an Instagram every day. Uh, I've got, you know, tom.locals.com. I got my local site. I've got, you know, podcasts, the whole deal. But we live in a media age. So it's just about balance. And when we go away, we'll go up to New Hampshire and we get in a cabin the devices don't even work, so it's not even like you have to put them away. We're out of range of the, uh, you know, not only Wi-Fi but the the uh, the dial-up, and so it's like back to nature. So what's the what's the world going to be like, Tom? You got your crystal ball. You're known for your your foreshadowing skills. What, what's what, what's life going to be like 10, 20 years from now? Well, I think we're going back. I think people are waking up. We just had a terrible couple of years. And I think a lot of people that went through this, they, they said, uh, and what I mean by that is we had a, people who gave up control of their lives to the government in unprecedented ways. And people now are maybe realizing that's not the way to happiness, that we have to not only this isn't like a conservative liberal thing. It's not about, oh, let the market decide. The government was controlling, making people cover their faces when they went out in public. That's not good. You know, they, they, they were not allowing us to go to church. So I think a lot of people woke up from that stupor and people who, who you know, the kind of middle American, say even liberal thinking American, someone who voted for Obamacare, they wanted that, you know, government care. They say, oh, I, I want the government to take care of me, you know, in the, the healthcare system to look out for us. I think a lot of people now are saying, you know what? I think we have to get self-sufficient. We have to start growing our own food. We don't believe in this big pharma-run uh, operation. You know, we don't believe in cradle-to-grave co- coverage by the government. 
So I think there's going to be a new America. It's like the homeschoolers. You know, my kids are, well, one of my kids is now in high school. She's at uh, a Catholic high school, but the the uh, the kids were homeschooled. We tapped into that homeschool world. It's a lot of people who are saying, no, no, we're going to do this ourselves. We're not going to just complain about the government. We're not going to say, oh, you know, you know, let, let's, uh, you know, spend all our time, you know, power to the people, electing representatives. No, we're just going to go do it. We're going to get out there. We're going to have our own schools. We're going to grow our own food. So that's the kind of thing, the off the grid mentality that used to be a liberal thing. You know, the people who were like tune in and drop out. Now you got conservatives coming together with, I guess, liberals, left wingers. And they're saying, you know, I'm suspicious of these big, not only big companies, big uh, pharmaceutical, big, big industry, globalism. They're starting to look to the old ways. So maybe, maybe our old-fashioned ways, Jason, are going to catch on. That's what I think. You know, there's a lot of truth to that. Like when I came home from school as a kid, I'd throw the bologna in the little toaster and make a little toasted bologna sandwich, slap some mayonnaise on it, and, you know, I was off on my way. Now, wait a minute. You said the bologna in the toaster. So did you put the bologna in the sandwich and throw the whole thing in the toaster? Well, it wasn't one of those, you know— vertical toasters it was one of those horizontal toasters so gravity was on my side here and but i did things like that like i got home and i was hungry i'd made a sandwich you know and we didn't have lunchables we didn't have like just throw it in the microwave you know we had to actually make something if we wanted to eat it and then but you what you said about being self-sufficient i think it really does resonate because like one of our kids uh well two of them at least when we have three, um, they're all about growing their own food, cooking their own food, making sure that they, you know, that they can be self-sufficient. They get so much more satisfaction out of it, but it's like they discovered it their own. I, I kind of convinced that if mom and dad had like forced this upon them, they would have gone the opposite direction. Yeah. Yeah. But now that they're like discovering, wait, you can grow a carrot and then cook it yourself? How cool is that? I didn't know that it just didn't show up in this plastic bag naturally. Yeah, and I, I think you're right that kids uh, these days they're going they're they're going to be naturally um, suspect of a lot of these a lot of this centralized control. Uh, I think a lot of kids, hopefully, a lot of kids came out of this uh, uh, you know COVID era. Uh, thinking, wait a minute, I don't trust these people. I don't yeah. trust what they're telling me. Uh, they seem to be changing their mind every five minutes. Uh, and, and I think- Because they did? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm shocked that they didn't trust government. I mean, Mr. Lord Fauci, I am science. Yeah. Um, how dare you look me at the man behind the curtain? Oz is the all-powerful and all-knowing uh, I so would if I change my mind and don't do what I say I you should do. I mean, Fauci is so oblivious. He's the highest paid employee in all of the government, and he's still there. I, why Joe Biden doesn't make a switch there and tout that he made it a switch? I mean, oh. what does he have to lose? I mean, his anyway. I didn't mean to get off on that tangent, but no, it no, is it representative is part- how people feel about government as a whole, and it's interesting because. I feel like the liberals of old have kind of they don't even have a place in today's Democratic Party. Like the old ACLU, they were all about free speech no matter what. They protected Oliver North. They protected a lot of people that were on the far right wing of the spectrum if it was about free speech. Now, even Ira Glasser, their former director, is saying, uh, yeah, you know, they kind of peek around the corner and if it helps progressives then they do it. If it doesn't help progressives, then, you know, they're, they're not going to get involved. Absolutely. I mean, when I was a kid, I think it was that long ago, but the, the Skokie, it was the March in Skokie. The ACLU protected the Nazis. Yeah. The Nazis did. were marching and they said, look, we don't like them, but you got to let them march, guys. This is about civil liberties. And so, uh, you know, that, and that's real Nazis, Jason. I'm not talking about people who yeah. disagreed with. That's just some, yeah, some off-the-cuff comment that doesn't even come close to equating the severity and the atrocity that was real Nazism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's uh, you know th- that's what's happened. The ACLU they've become just a another generic left-wing organization. You know, I heard Elon Musk gave a lot of money and continues to give a lot of money to the ACLU. I think somebody ought to. Uh, 
you know, kind of sit down with him. And I don't think he understands what has happened to them. He's, I think he still thinks they're a free speech outfit, but uh, maybe he'll figure it out. Yeah, maybe you can tap him on the shoulder and say, yeah, you know, Elon, you do a lot of good, but you could do a lot of good without doing this a different direction, although he's one of my favorites. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Tom Shalou right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I want to go back here because it's always interesting to me how you cross paths with people in life. I mean, like there's relatively few people that you actually get to know and can be friends and, and yeah. uh, in the whole big scheme of the billions of people that are, that are there. And so you grew up, how in the world did you end up with Fox? That's where I want to get to, but let's go back because you talk about this in the book. And again, mean dads was really fun to, for me. And, um, but let's talk about early childhood and what life was like for Tom before you kind of get out and go into the big city and start to make your way. Yeah, so it's Norwood, Massachusetts I grew up, and very uh, very New England town, Irish Catholic town, kind of working class town, but not, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was a good mix, but it was a nice town, good public schools. I was in public school the whole time, but I was an altar boy, you know, I was, uh, you know, Catholic church, we got the, uh, uh, the Boy Scouts, you know, the classic American Northeast upbringing in the 70s. Um, and, but a pretty conservative town, you know, I mean, Massachusetts is liberal. They voted Democrat there and they, you know, for their, Ever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the, it was a conservative culture and it was a football high school. We didn't have much in the way of performing arts in high school. So I was an art room kid. I, I was kind of an alternative, you know, listen to David Bowie. I kind of liked, uh, you know, the 80s music scene, the punk rock, the ska, you know, that kind of thing. And I was an art room kid. I really wanted to be a performer. I was kind of a show off. I was kind of a comedian, but we didn't have any theater to speak of. Right. Um, and I remember going to the head, the administration saying, hey, we should have a theater club at this school. And the principal said to me, Tom, this is a high, this is a uh, this is a football high school. We're a sports, we're a sports town, you know, and, strap on the pads, get out there. Yeah. And you know, but I, I wanted to get my attention different ways. I was a track, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't much, uh, uh, of an athlete, but I did run track and cross country, you know, but I wanted to do theater and I did a little bit of it, a little bit of community theater and, uh, my creative outlet ended up being visual arts so the art room kids, we spent a lot of time, art and music. The art room and the music room were next to each other. And so I would spend a lot of time there, and they were kind of the alternative kids, you know, not the not not the troubled kids, but they were like the they were the artsy kids, right? So I thought I would go to art school. And that was my thing. I started applying to art schools, but then I was in the senior show. I remember I did stand-up comedy in the senior show. There's there's a chapter of it in my book when I I try my uh, my hand at stand-up comedy when I was emceeing the the high school show and people were laughing. I was getting laughs from an audience, and I thought to myself, hmm, maybe maybe the art world is not for me. Maybe it's the performing world. So I didn't go to college. Took a year off after college, and that was wait wait wait. You didn't go to college, so you took a year off after college? Oh, did I say college? Year off after high school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I decided to work. I got a job at a men's clothing store. I didn't want to go right to college. Now they Nowadays, it's a little more common. They call it a gap year. But yeah. back then, yeah. it was considered a little bit risky. And I remember, because uh, I wasn't a dummy. You know, I, I was an art room kid, but I, I was kind of a A, B student, you know. Uh, I was a fairly good student, the kind of student that goes to college. And when the principal of the school, who was actually, uh, he had become the superintendent of the Norwood schools after that, when he heard that I was not going to college, he called me into his office. And this was, now he was the superintendent of schools. He was no longer my principal, but he sat me down and I said, what does this guy want to talk about? And he said to me, I, I'm a little worried you're not going to college. You know, you, you, you don't go, and one year turns into two, and that turns into three. And then you know, he says, you're a smart kid. You should be in college. And I said, look, I want to figure things out. I don't know what I'm doing yet. 
and he said, well, I, I drew up this contract, and he wrote up a one, a one sheet, and it said, I, Tom Shalhoub, promise James Savage, who was the superintendent of schools, uh, that I will go to college in the year, I guess this was, I graduated 84, so it would have been the, in the uh, fall of, or, or the so. fall of 85, right? Right. And I promised him, and I signed a, a pledge to him that I would do that, that I would only take one year off. And it was amazing because I, it didn't really, it didn't matter to me that he, what mattered to me that he was interested, that he took the time out, that he saw something in me. You know, I was a bit of a goofy kid. I was always going for laughs, you know. And the idea that this guy was like, look, you got to promise me you're going to go to college. It kind of, it struck me. I thought like, oh, this guy has faith in me. Like he thinks something's going to happen. It's those little things, those little things that people show, uh, they show faith in you. And that meant a lot to me. I mean, I never, I never told the guy, I wonder if he's still around, but James Savage. Well, that's good. I mean, it kind of changed your life. So what did you do? I mean, did you end up going to college? I did. I went, I ended up going to Emerson college. So in that year I worked at a men's clothing store and I, I saw the way that the working world was the nine to fivers. I mean, I had had jobs before we, you know, I worked washing dishes. I worked in a uh, nursing home, uh, you know, were you still living at home? Yeah. Still living at home. And I'm working at the clothing store, Sims department store. And I, I'm seeing people coming in, punching the clock, you know, and I remember people, they always want to take their break. They say, I got to go kill five minutes. And I remember somebody saying, I got to go kill, kill five minutes. I'm thinking like, this guy wants to kill time. And he's, he's older than me. This guy's like, this guy was in his fifties. He wants to go kill five minutes. You can't afford to kill five minutes when you're in your fifties. These are precious minutes. But I remember thinking like these people, they're working their jobs. And I'm thinking this, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. I don't want to work in a store that, 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 you know, or a place that, you know, some people like to work in stores, but I don't want to work in a job where I'm trying to kill minutes. Right, right, right. <laughs> so I said. You got to enjoy it. You got to have a, I think the success, right? You got to have a little passion, a little excitement. Yes. You got to be excited to come to work. And hey, I need to put in an extra 30 minutes. And wow, the time just flew by because I just love what I'm doing. Yeah. So I, that's when I said, I'm going to, I am going to do the performing arts thing, even though that seemed more unsure than visual arts, because I knew with visual arts, I could at least go into graphic design, you know, advertising. Yeah. And, you uh, could you probably know. get a regular nine to five type of job, right? Yeah, get yeah. a salary. Exactly. But performing arts, that was really Okay, so what was your big break here? How did you, I mean, it's one thing to say it and want it, but how did you do it? Well, it was a, it was a, somebody asked me about that. When was the break? And it's, you can, you, it's hard to recognize it. You have to look back on it. But went to Emerson. There's a lot of performers there. There were people doing stand-up comedy there. Guys like Anthony Clark, who was this great stand-up who was there. David Cross was there. Uh, You remember him from Mr. Show, and he was on, uh, the uh, what's that other show? He's on David Cross, big celebrity guy, whatever. But a lot of comedians were there. Dennis Leary was a teacher there. Dennis wow. Leary, the famous comedian, yeah. was a teacher of comedy uh, at Emerson. So I didn't. I mean, I didn't learn how to be a comedian there, but I learned that there were people making a living in the business, and I watched how they did it. So it's kind of like being around these people. Wow, it's possible to make a living in show business. So I didn't even graduate. I did a couple of years there. I went on the road with an acapella group. We toured around the country and, again, opened my eyes to a whole world of entertainment. We performed at colleges. We're, we're doing gigs for, you know, $1,500, $2,000 a pop, making money, five guys on the road in a van, singing for our supper, literally. And there's this whole entertainment circuit, the college market that we played. And we would go to conventions and we would perform at the convention, and then the college bookers, a representative from each college would be there. They would book us. 20 gigs would come out of that convention with 20 gigs booked. Wow. Then we'd do another convention, another 20 gigs. I mean, we had the whole calendar booked. Uh, in early September, we were ready to go through Christmas. And so I thought, okay, there's people out there that you never heard of in your life, never been on a TV show, never done anything, and they're making a living on the college market, comedians, hypnotists, uh, singers, you know? So I thought, all right, this is something. It's a possibility. If you work hard, you can make it. So I I got off of that gig. I started doing improv. I was doing a, in an improv group in Boston. We didn't make any money, of course. 
And then I moved uh, to Florida. I got a job at Universal Studios uh, doing uh, performing like they do at Disney, right? The, the performers uh, who, who perform on stage in the, in the quasi rides and events and things like that. They had a, a bunch of performers. Uh, I had actually done a, a Jimmy Stewart impersonation, and they brought me down there to do that in the park. Let's let's hear a little. Let's. Well, doggone it, Mary, Mary, you said her. Uh, let me let me lasso the moon for you. That's right, Mary. So, <laughs> so I did Jimmy Stewart at this audition. They hired me to go down there, and Jimmy Stewart, who was alive at the time, this is 1990. Jimmy Stewart wouldn't give them the rights to have me perform. There. He said, "No, I'm still alive. What do you? I'm not. You know. <laughs> what do you? So." That fell through, but I'm in Florida. They had offered me the job, so they said, look, we're going to give you a job as, a, as an MC of this show. So I hosted a live show on stage at Universal Studios Florida, and there were other performers there. Again, you're working with people, other young performers. There was a guy I did a show with there named Wayne Brady. You know Wayne Brady? Yes. Wayne Brady. Yes, I do. 19 years old. Talented as all get out. I'm thinking this guy's gonna. I, I don't. It's, I don't know what he's gonna do. Movies, TV, but whatever it is, he's gonna be successful because he could do everything at age 19. He he was funny. He could dance. He could sing. So anyway, that year, one year again at it was a year on the road with the acapella group, opening my eyes to that world. A year down in Florida, I'm making twelve dollars and ninety cents an hour, uh, and working in showbiz with all these other young, hungry performers. And there was a guy named Asif Mandvi. He and I did a sh- uh, show together uh, down there. He was one of the other hosts of the show. And he said, I want to move to New York. I said, I do too. So we both moved to New York at the same time, moved to Queens, got a cheap apartment. I didn't move in with Asif. I moved in with my sister who lived here. She's uh, in the apparel business working for uh, Polo Ralph Lauren. So I moved in with my sister and I just started kicking the, the pavement, running around, trying to go on stage. Getting up, my first night, I went to a comedy club called Cold Waters, and I signed the list, open mic night, got up and did stand-up. The guy who went on after me, his name's Jim Gaffigan. He signed the list. So you see where this is going. You make, you know, these people, and, and you know, none of these people, they were great to work with, great peers. But it's not like uh, Wayne Brady or Jim Gaffigan was ever going to be the one to give me the break, because they're... Right. They, you know, they're climbing the ladder themselves. They're trying to break in. There's no formula. No one's going to give you, no one person is going to give you your break. But of course, I came up with Jim. We're doing stand up spots together at the clubs. And that first night, I remember I said to Jim, You're funny. Because I, I knew he was funny. Neither of us had a good act. We were brand new in the business. But I said, Hey, you're funny. He said, Oh, you're funny. And then we exchanged phone numbers. He was working at Gray Advertising at the time. I was working as a waiter, you know, and uh, so we became buddies. And so that was, you know, so we're talking about 10 years of that. It's 1990, 1991 when I moved to New York. And I am, you know, dirt poor, uh, but those were good days running around, auditioning. Like I said, working the support jobs, you call them, working as a waiter, uh, eventually I started auditioning, getting commercials, TV commercials. That was a big thing for me. So I get this decade where I'm just trying to get on stage, trying to get on TV, get in front of anyone who will see me. I can't get seen for the tonight show. I can't get seen for uh, Conan O'Brien, you know, comedy central now comes starts. It's a, you know, ca- a new cable network trying to get those people to come and see me. So it's all just, uh, it, it's just the grind. And it was about 10 years and I probably had, my first big, I mean, I, like I said, I, was, I would get breaks, like I would do commercials. I would shoot a, a, a pilot for a sketch comedy show, didn't get picked up. You know, you always think something's going to happen, and right. then your hopes are dashed. 1999, I got, uh, struggled my, it got my way onto a show. It was an audition for Late Night with Conan O'Brien. The booker of the show didn't want to see me. She had a list of people she wanted to see. But the club owner said, hey, do you want to MC the show? You know, it's not a it's not a real spot, but you can be the MC." I said, sure, I'll do it. MC'd the show. I threw in a couple jokes here and there, you know, at the right times. The booker called another comedian and said, hey, who's this guy, Tom Shalhoub? My friend Todd Barry. He said, he's funny. So I got the okay from a fellow comedian who she trusted. 
Right, right. Who's this guy? He's funny. Okay, I'm going to book him. She books me on the show. My first stand-up gig, 1999. So basically we're talking about from about 86 to 99 is wow. just the grind. That was the break. Yeah. <laughs> right, the and that's it. I mean, years of it. <laughs> and that is, that is a big, you know, it's a big milestone. It's not like anybody, my phone wasn't ringing off the hook the day after I did Conan. But then some of these managers who were like, hey, yeah, yeah, I got my eye on you. You know, you, you know, the, there's managers, there's agents. You come across these people and you say, hey, I want to work with you. Well, you know, they, 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 don't, they don't see it yet. Uh, then I did Conan and this manager was like, hey, why don't we um, let's see, see how things go here? I'll send you out on some auditions. Went out there. Then, you know, that didn't work. I got a different manager, started doing Comedy Central. Uh, I toured with Gaffigan. So then it's another 10 years of that kind of thing. And uh, that's when we're getting to the, to the point of where I'm, I'm making a good living in the business. I'm a headliner, but I am touring with Gaffigan as his opener. And I started doing Red Eye, this show with Greg Gutfeld, this wacky show at three in the morning. And uh, it was off the beaten path. You know, I wasn't... Had I Greg seen you and he invited you? Or how did that, how'd that go down? I mean, you can't just show up on a... TV show and well you know what it was funny a guy named Andrew Breitbart who I called out of the blue at one point I, I found him on Facebook uh, he had just done an interview and he said something incredibly politically incorrect that I read in the in the newspaper like back when you read newspapers right, on right. paper right mm -hmm. and I said who is this guy he's this Hollywood guy he's from California he's absolutely politically incorrect so I sent him a, a Facebook message this was early in the Facebook days Send him a message on Facebook. My phone rings immediately. I gave him my phone number. said, hey, call me next time you're in New York. My phone rings. Tom, it's Andrew. <laughs> he says, we got to talk. He said, I want, you to, I want you to meet Greg Gutfeld. And uh, I want you to meet this guy. I want you to meet that guy. So Br Breitbart was a connector. And he connected me to Gutfeld. I did the show. And then from there, it was like I was just one of their favorite yeah. guests because yeah. just things were clicking. I loved comedy. I loved the, the news. I was right of center, but I wasn't a particularly political guy, but I was right of center. Greg kind of liked the way I thought. I liked the way the show was. And then the show itself was, for me, fun. It was not like, I'm not going to make a career out of this. If you want a career, what do you do? You go, you, you got to impress the right people. This, you know, Fox News Red Eye, I mean, these. this is not the cool kids table, is it? This is the misfits table. <laughs> so I just did it for fun. And then the Fox News audience starts coming out to see me. I go to a show and all of a sudden I got these Fox News fans in the audience. I think, wait a minute, this is my audience. I'm trying to impress these Hollywood people. This is my crowd, Red State America. <laughs> it's true. The people that, yeah, they want to laugh. They love the country, but they, they want to laugh. They can joke at themselves and others. And they, they read the newspaper, like you said. And uh, yeah, a lot of people just kind of, that's why they call it flyover country, Tom. That's that's yeah. what they do. They just fly over and don't pay attention to them. But, boy, there's a lot of people who have made some good money and good careers off, off uh, just understanding that, just appreciating those folks. Those blue-collar guys, blue-collar comedy. You know, Jeff Foxworthy, Larry the Cable Guy, you know, all those guys, right? They, uh, yeah. Ron White. They were the biggest draw in the country. Absolutely biggest ticket in comedy. Yeah. Selling out stadiums. Then their show, the Blue Collar Comedy Tour, uh, or the Blue Collar Comedy Guys, yeah. they, they did it on Comedy Central. The ratings were not just the highest rated show on Comedy Central. It was like double every other show. But the Comedy Central executives, they couldn't stand them. They didn't want the Blue Collar Guys. They didn't care about the ratings. They wanted the cool comedians that nobody... Right. <laughs> right. They wanted the Hollywood comedians. Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's the same with... With Hollywood, if you had the biggest uh, comedy star in the country, like uh, you know Larry the Cable Guy or Foxworthy himself, you'd think Hollywood would be writing scripts for these guys. No, they didn't want to be be with these guys. They were like, no, no, that's the that's the red state stuff. I don't want that. But that's the way it's always been. So, I, I spent probably and look, I love show business. I love stand up comedy. Uh, I love you know. I mean, I, I can't say I love Hollywood these days. There's still some stuff I. I, I I like, but I always love movies and TV shows, especially comedies. But when I spent, you know, then I spent basically 20 years trying to break into this business that didn't really appreciate me. And I, I wasn't sure why. Why am I not breaking through this business? Then when I finally found the people who 
resonated with me, of course, I resonated with them. So yeah. it, it really ended. It was a, it was quite a, uh, and it's funny because I think a lot of people would be, you know, the people that I know from, you know, I still do Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. I've done every one of the shows. I used to work on the, the, uh, uh, the Daily Show. Uh, that was one of that was one of my breaks actually in the late nineties. I pitched them and I got my own segment on the Daily Show with Craig Kilborn and then the Daily Show with John Stewart. I, then when I did I did Conan, so I've done I've done every late night show, Conan O'Brien, uh, Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. I did Colbert after my book came out. I was on that show and uh, a Comedy Central, of course, Daily Show, all that stuff. And now that I'm on Fox News, a lot of people from my old world, they're like, hey, so what's that like now that you're Fox News? I mean, is it like, uh, you know, are you out of show business now or what? And I'm like, no, I'm just getting going here. You know, uh, Yeah, we have an actual audience over here. Yeah. So <laughs> people yeah. actually watch this channel. And now they have to admit it. I mean, especially with Greg on at 11 o'clock every night now. Yeah. It's undeniable. They ignored us for as long as they could. Even when Greg was on Saturday nights, his still his ratings were through the roof. But now that he's actually beating Jimmy Kimmel by huge margins, right? They have to pay attention to him. So just today in the Atlantic, they finally said, "Hey, this Gutfeld guy, he's take he's taking names. He's he's yeah. huge." And they even said begrudgingly, "And that guy who works on his show, he's good." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no. If they watch, they look. They get a smile. They get a laugh. Greg, Greg is one of the hardest working guys. I mean, it really is amazing. And the notes that he takes, and the practice that he puts in, and you know, I've seen a lot of people do a lot of television, but like on the Five, for instance, it, most people would be surprised. He goes out there and practices before the show. Yeah, that's just like, come on. The guy's been on TV for how many how many years now? You, you could do this. You could. But no, he wants to perfect it. He likes to hear it out loud. He, and I know he loves an audience. I mean, that's one thing that I think is going to really – Gutfeld's getting even better because he thrives, and you and others, they like a live audience, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just different. It's better than just having a studio tech and a floor manager out there. It's It's got to be uh, – to get that immediate feedback, it's got to feel good. Yeah, it's great. And you're right about the – the Gutfeld work ethic, it does remind me of, I mean, the guys that I've, because, uh, uh, you know, now I do live shows with with Gutfeld. We got one coming up in Salt Lake City soon, and we do these live shows in theaters. A lot of the theaters that I used to play with Gaffigan, and so it's similar. You know, we got, uh, Jim was a headliner. I was his opening act. When I, go, when I do the shows with Greg, I come out first, and I do half hour of stand-up, and then I bring Greg out there. But working with these guys, they're similar. They successful guys like Gaffigan, like Gutfeld, they have a great work ethic to the point of where it's almost annoying. Like Jim and uh, and Greg, after the show, okay, the show's over. I hear the audience. I mean, you get up for the show. I do my vocal warm-ups. I like to stretch out. I take it all very seriously. You know, this is show business. But then I do my show, and I want to sit down and have a glass of wine and chill. They go, they, same thing, both of these guys, they take out their notes after the show. They open up their, uh, their recorder that they, cause they record the show and they listen back and they say, okay, what's that? And they're, they're going over the show right after the show. I'm like, what, can you wait till Saturday? What worked? What didn't work? Yeah. 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 How to deliver it better. Yep. Yeah. That's, it, it is interesting that way. It, it, there's a reason why these guys are at the top of their game, right? And yeah. the reason that you've been so successful is. You pay attention to it, and and you could look. I could deliver a line. You could deliver a line. You're going to get laughs. I people are going to look at me like, "Are you an idiot? What, what did you just say?" <laughs> yes. I mean, there is a skill set to this that is creative, and I don't know. I just stand in awe. And, and you know what's amazing is, like, I'm sure if you stood up and did a half hour right now, it'd be flawless. No, um, uh, what? Like, I, I watched some of these other folks and yourself included that. There's like no pause. There's no, what am I supposed to say next? Like, it's just amazing to me. It's like music. I mean, after a while, because people say, they'll come see me do, because uh, if I'm alone, I'll do, you know, 55 minutes or an hour. When I do the the Greg show, I'll, I'll come out and do a half hour and people will say, uh, wow, that's, uh, you know, how much of that, you know, was, was planned? I'm like, it's all planned. My stand-up is, I mean, I wrote it. <laughs> It, every it wasn't word, impromptu. Yeah, there's no, there's no impromptu. I try to make it seem like it is. Sometimes I'll say a line, it gets a laugh, and then I kind of look over at the audience and I, I say another line that sounds like an ad lib. It's not an ad lib. 
It's the whole reason I'm saying it is because I, you know, I said it last week and it got a huge laugh. So the uh, it changes. You know, I add I add stuff. Sometimes I do ad lib, and if it doesn't get a laugh, I don't say that again. If it does, I add it to the act. Is That's there a regional do. aspect to this? I mean, like, hey, out west, they love this stuff. But well, if I say this up in. Portland, Maine, that ain't nobody going to laugh at that one. Yeah, and that's the shame, too, because if you go to Portland, Maine, and you, you know, say you saw something interesting that day, sometimes I'll, I'll throw that at the top of the show. I'll say, uh, okay, Portland, you know, what's, what's with your airport? And then, you know, they, they all say, oh, yeah, that dumb mural at our airport, you know. And so you do a, a local joke, and you think, boy, this killed. Too bad I can't do this anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, that, there's got to be there, – there's a lot to that. You are coming to Salt Lake City. Um, I, You know, being from Utah, I thought, oh, I'll get some tickets for some friends of mine. But there's like – Six seats on tier three at the back of the. I mean, it's unbelievable. I think it's you, Greg Gutfeld, and I think Tyrus is coming as well with his new book. So. That's right. Tyrus will be there. And, uh, but you, you, I, I gave you Greg's manager, right? He's going to set you up. I hope so. I, I hope they'll let me in the door. That security will, will let me through the door. That would be, that would be great. I'd love to see you guys. I mean, I've been on Getfeld a few times, and it is funny. I just sit there and laugh. I think, wow, I got the best seat in the house here. And and then they turn to me like, okay, be funny. And I'm like, nah, it's just I'm the straight guy. I don't, I can't keep up with you guys. I try every once in a while, but it goes over like a lead balloon. Well, I think you do great. And, uh, you know, the thing is that you just kind of go along with it. it. It is an improv game because Greg does have a lot of lines, you know, He's got a certain amount of jokes that are in the prompter. But then, as you know from being on the panel, half the stuff he says are asides that are just, you know, you don't even know where he's coming from. So you just have to no, kind of it, run with that's it. what I and um, you know, when he reacts to if Kat or Tyra says something that in the reaction and on the five too, Dana Perino will say something or Judge Janine or somebody and his reaction to it or his challenge back to is is really pretty funny. And um, yeah, and also, uh, to be honest, uh, the audience probably doesn't sometimes they might not get a reference. They'll say, wait a minute, what what, that went over my head? Because Greg will say something, you know, uh, someone will say, uh, oh, yeah, he he played a he played a full house. And then Greg turns to the camera and says, my favorite kind. And then you're like. What did that even mean? And then you think like, you know what? I don't even think Greg knew what it meant. It sounded vaguely dirty to him. So he just turned and said, my favorite kind. But to be honest, I don't think he knows what he's talking about sometimes. <laughs> no, it's just the way, the inflection, the raised eyebrow, the, you know, but that's part of comedy too, right? Is yeah. just being able to to, to, to to just play in the moment, and say, you know. Uh, that's what she said, you know, that those yeah. types of things. So, And honestly, uh, I mean, I got kids. Sometimes they say, oh, you're on Gutfeld tonight. And I say, go to bed. I, uh, <laughs> we'll watch this in the morning. And then I can kind of, you know, I can cut out the, the stuff I don't want them to see. <laughs> well, we look forward to hosting you and having you here in Utah. That's, that, that, that's, that's for sure. And there's a reason why you're going to be super successful here. There's a huge uh, Fox News following in Utah and, and just the need to get some good comedy. And uh, even down here in southern Utah, uh, Tuacon, uh, Larry the Cable Guy. I mean, a sold-out performance at Tuacon. It was wow. – uh, Utah's growing that way, and there's a lot of appreciation, and it's still a pretty conservative part of the world. So, you know, we like to brag that this is the one state where Bill Clinton came in third. So that will give you a sense <laughs> yeah, of where we're – That's great. What where was we're it? at. Was it, was it to Bush, Perot, and then Clinton? Yeah, oh, uh, wow. in third place. So and it happened twice. So, but then when when he actually goes and becomes the president, then it's kind of say, yeah, we're from Utah. You know, where you came in third. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, they love um, comedy in Utah. A thriving scene there, uh, and uh, they love clean comedy. One of my favorites, Brian Regan. He goes there. He'll sell out. Uh, you oh, know, he's there a lot. A whole and string it, of shows. Yeah, a whole string of shows. You're right, night after night because. Yeah, they want good, clean comedy, and uh, um, and it's it's something. We're also the technically Utah's the youngest state in the nation. That's because we pop out a lot of kids, but right. statistically, we're the youngest state in the nation. So makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more right after this. Tom. I got to ask you some quick questions because nobody, I don't care how many jokes and acapella songs you've sung. Um, I got to get you through the rapid questions. To oh, I heard know, about this part. Heard about it. 
to know the full Tom Shalhoub. So if you don't mind, here we go. Ready? Yeah. Uh, first concert you ever attended? Cheap Trick. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, it was in Boston Garden, I believe. Cheap Trick. Uh, they they were loud. Yeah. And, and then I recently saw loud. them again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I just saw them again this winter. They're still oh, rocking. Yeah? Same songs? Same songs. I want you to want me. Surrender. That's a great song. I want you to want me. And how true for every teenage person there is. I want you to want me. Anyway, what was your high school mascot? Mustang. Norwood Mustangs. Were there a lot of horses running around out there? Nah, it's not horse country, but I guess, you know, it's like uh, it looks good on a logo. It does look good. It looks good on a Ford, and it looks good on a logo in high school. And you know what? That's like our kids were Lone Peak Knights. And I can't tell you that in Utah there were a lot of knights running around, but it is another one of those. It's a cool logo, Yeah. even though there weren't a whole lot of knights back in the day. <laughs> like in armor, where this, the logo was yeah, wearing you know, armor? The, yeah, exactly. And the... What do they call that big long thing? That, you know, when you're oh, the joust. You know, and you're jousting. Oh yeah, the joust. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there was a lot of that going on, but um, yeah, that's all right. Uh, what's your favorite vegetable? Broccoli. I love really? broccoli, and it's underappreciated because I know a lot of people hate broccoli, but uh, I love it. I love sautéed broccoli. I love the uh, raw broccoli and the uh, you know the crudité, and it's very good for you, and it's got a lot of fiber. I do love spinach too. I love the greens. Well, good for you. I mean, that's why I think you're probably in shape and going to live long because, you know, half the people I've interviewed on my podcast can't name a vegetable, which will give you a sense of where they might be going in, in their, with their health. But, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you but did. But you know what? It. We probably have an advertiser on this network that sells uh, pills that are vegetable-based. Yeah, I think I've very seen their colorful. commercials. Yeah. Yes, as a supplement. <laughs> exactly. As a supplement instead of those for those people that – couldn't name a vegetable. You got it in a pill. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, good idea. Okay, so technically, we kind of walked through this, but technically, what was your first job outside, away from mom and dad? Well, it was uh, the Norwood uh, Nursing and Retirement Home, and I lied to get in there. Uh, I did tell a lie. They said, how old are you? I said, 16. And I guess those were in the days we didn't have Homeland Security or I any lied of that. To so. get, I lied to get in my first job. Yep. Okay, you did, yeah. So, yeah, I did. I did. They expected it back then. How old were you? I was like 14. Yeah. But I was tall. Yeah. Yeah, I was and, 15, you know, I was and I was geeky. willing to wash dishes, and uh, and it wasn't, I wasn't caring for the, the in, in a nursing home sense. We were doing the kitchen at the nursing home, so we had to bring them their food up on the trays, you know, with those little covers on them, and then we had to go up and get the trays, bring them back down, and wash the dishes. It was a, it was a classic kitchen job. Yeah, that's good, though. You learn to work. I tell you that. That's for sure. Yeah. I learned to drink coffee on that job, too. It was, it was great. So uh, if you met Bigfoot, what would you ask him? I think I would ask him uh, about some, since Bigfoot is essentially a, you know, a conspiracy theory personified, mm -hmm. I would ask him about all the other conspiracy theories that I happen to believe in. Yeah? Yeah. Like what, what? Like what? Well, I think we'd we'd discuss all the modern conspiracy theories, like uh, you know, uh, all the COVID stuff and ivermectin and things like that. Then we'd go on to uh, aliens, outer space, uh, and then we'd probably go to Loch Ness and uh, you know all that stuff. Bigfoot. That's a, that's an interesting answer that you would ask Bigfoot about Loch Ness. That that's yeah, because he's going to know. See, comedians look at things differently. <laughs> <laughs> Here, proven that. I, I have never had that answer, but that's a good answer. It would be an interesting, see what Daryl had to say about that. That would be interesting. <laughs> I don't know. I think Bigfoot gets a, more of a play out west because that's supposed, supposedly he lives out this direction. Yeah, He's the I, northwest, I right? Yeah, it's kind of the northwest, but he, he maybe roams in the Intermountain West as well. But yeah, the northwest. Yeah, that's. I think that's home base. I don't know. That's why. That's why I'd ask him where you've been all these years. But yeah. Um, do you have a pet growing up? We had a pet cat named Cleo. Um, and, uh, then we had another cat named, we had some twins named Batman and Robin. That's <laughs> cats. That's a good name. Yeah, I cats, like Batman those. and Robin. My dad called them, when we got the twins, because we had Cleopatra, he wanted to name the two, the twins, uh, Anthony and, uh, Mark Anthony and Julius Caesar. And we, <laughs> we liked Batman and Robin. 
My dad stuck with the cumbersome name, so you know, it, in our home, he was going to say, "Julius Caesar, get over here." I said, "Oh, my dad, you don't even know what the cat's name is." But he he stuck with the classics. <laughs> That's good. shot eye. That's good. I'm impressed. Um, if you could meet one person, you'd say, "Hey, you know, honey, look, we're gonna kids gather around because we got somebody special coming over for dinner tonight." If you could invite one person, dead or alive, who would that person be? to come over uh, for share break some bread i'll just say dead any dead anyone who's dead <laughs> anybody that's dead. any dead well you said alive or dead i'm gonna i'm gonna go dead no i would say <laughs> uh, i don't want to go too ancient because i think that it would be it, it would have would have communication problems right so i i would probably go with with founding fathers i would go with a maybe a jefferson with a washington uh, maybe an Adams. I think Adams would be great. Obviously, Lincoln would be great. But I would think I would go to the founding fathers, and not because I'm obsessed only with American history, but if you went back back through history, I just think it would be harder to uh, to to you know have a have a good solid conversation with those folks. Yeah, like King Tut would be a little bit more yeah. difficult to communicate with, right? Absolutely, he's got a very different set of interests. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a different set of interests. Yes, that's the way. All right, life's most embarrassing moment for Tom Shalhoub. Oh, most embarrassing moment. Would... Well, you had to have had an act that just something crazy happened. Yeah. You can't have done it this long and just said, you know, whoa, that now that was crazy. <laughs> it doesn't have to be personally embarrassing or just flat out crazy that happened. Uh, I think the... Um... Uh, I think the uh, let's see. It's got to go back to it's got to go back to grammar school. It seems like I should be able to think of these right because I'm very uh, I have a lot of old a lot of old memories. Um, but I would say the oh man, most embarrassing, most embarrassing. The uh, I think there. Well, you know what? It, it, the thing that's coming to mind. And I didn't want to say it because it doesn't sound that embarrassing. But that's the thing that that I uh, that that's that springs to mind. It was in high school. We went to a rally, and somebody, the guy came down the, the you know the head, the principal, or whatever, and he says, "Everybody ready?" And I just thought that that's because he was talking about the, the crew, like the administration. But I was focused on him, and there was all these vice principals and teachers. And is everybody ready? And he wanted to start the rally. But I thought it was, I thought the rally was about to begin. So he said, is everybody ready? And I was like, ready! Like I just screamed. <laughs> the only one. <laughs> the only one. Hey, Tom. Tom's fired up and ready to go. All right. <laughs> but when and, you're that age, it is terribly embarrassing. You don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be the guy sticking out like a sword thumb like Well, that. they all looked at me, and then it got a laugh. That's the funny thing is that it got a laugh, but then the fact that my face turned so red, and then people realized, wait a minute, he didn't do that as a joke. He really thought, and the whole thing caved in. Now, if that happened right now, I would know to keep my cool after my many years of comedy training. But I was not, I had not keep my cool. Face turned red. When they saw the red face, then it gets even redder. And then they start laughing at you rather than with you. Yeah, I keep telling people have certain things that happen to them, like in politics. And I just say, just be very Clinton-esque. Just pretend <laughs> it didn't happen. Yeah. Just ignore it. Just move on as if everything just happened exactly the way you wanted it to happen. Yeah, that's it. It's very Clinton-esque. They, they have pulled that card out of their trick. I mean, they've used that trick I don't know how many times. Unique talent that nobody knows about. Like, what can Tom Shalhoub do that, yeah, nobody knows I can do this, but I can do this? Um, well, I do, uh, I, I, I do watercolors. But that's really? no surprise because I've already told you I did visual art in in high school. So now I've yeah, kind of but visual art. Yeah, but if the, okay, but the, the oh, I can colors. do my see. I'm not on camera now, but I could I could prove it to you. You could probably look it up because I did it on Red Eye before. But I I can um, I can bob my Adam's apple up and down probably faster than anyone you've ever met. <laughs> I don't know that that would qualify as unique talent, but that is unique. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that, I broke a world impressive. record, Jason. I have that's... the world record for Adam's apple bobs in one minute. <laughs> in one minute? Yes. Right. I'm going to trust you on that one. Yeah. This being a, you know, audio format, I can kind of imagine what that would be like. That That's interesting. All right, pineapple on pizza, yes or no? 
Yeah, yeah, I would do pineapple on pizza. Oh, I mean, Tom, I don't do it often. Tom, Tom, Tom. You say no? <sighs> Judges do not like this answer. Oh, We've my been God. through this on every podcast I've been through. And you know what? You just don't put wet fruit on a pizza. You just don't do it. Yeah. Put I'll it do- in a bowl, but don't put it on pizza. I did. But that's uh, okay. I made lobster pizza the other day. What do you think of that? That sounds very expensive. Yeah. Well, there was some lo- there was some extra lobster meat lying around that uh, we had some lobster rolls that we bought, and I didn't eat them all because it, you know it's hard to eat all in one sitting. And so I took the lobster, I put it on top of the day old pizza, I put it in, reheated it. Fantastic. That's interesting. All right. Well, that sounds like a very Massachusetts thing to do. <laughs> Does it? You think? Yes. Yeah. We don't have a whole lot of lobster just crawling around Utah, so oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah. probably We're... why we didn't do that out here. Yeah, we have the red lobster, but other than that, yeah, yeah, not a whole lot of lobster. All right, so what's the other thing for Tom Shalou? Like, and what I mean by that is, you want to get out, clear your head, forget about the problems of the day, just relax. Is it watercolors? What do you, What do you do to just kind of? soothe the soul and feed the spirit and and just feel good about life and just forget about everything else. What yeah, do you do? Yeah, I, I do. I lately I do love watercolors, but I always have a I always have a kind of a mellow activity that I do. So it could be watercolors, it could be just music, taking the guitar and practicing, could be yeah. taking the dog for a walk, leaving the device home and just walking with the dog and going to sit outside. Uh, I like to sit outside and read, love reading outside ever since I read To Kill a Mockingbird under the, under the tree outside my house in, in junior high. And so uh, I, I do need that getaway time. Lately, it has been watercolors. And, uh, and so it's like art and music, art and music. We need it in our lives. And uh, I use it as a way the time goes by when I'm, when I'm painting or when I'm drawing uh, or when I'm doing music. All of a sudden, three hours goes by, and I didn't even know what happened. Yeah, I think everybody needs. I think it's healthy. There is the, you know, um, Stephen Covey, who wrote the Seven Basic Habits of Highly Successful People. He lived by us, and I actually knew his son, and and he passed away a couple of years ago. But you know, that was one of his things: is that you got to have this outlet to kind of recharge your batteries. And I think it's it's so good to kind of pursue, whether it's a hobby or just something relaxing, I think it's it's very healthy. All right, last question. Wow. Best advice you ever got? Best advice I ever got would probably be, and I won't go back to the, the uh, you know, the, uh, the principal, uh, who became the superintendent, that was kind of good. That was a, ni- a nice little interaction with him that I had. So that was a very uh, uh, momentous thing, yeah. but I won't even call that advice. I would say the, uh, oh, you know what? There, I don't even know the, the guy's name, but I went to a speech when I was in high school. Uh, and it was a guy, I think he was a former either Red Sox or a former New England Patriots guy. It was an athlete and he came to give a speech. During the speech, he said, if there's any advice I could give you, it is keep a diary. Write down something every day. Get that diary, write it down. Says, it doesn't have to be your really? most deep thoughts. He said, it could be what you had for dinner, but just get a diary and write something in it every night. And so I did. I did what he said. I went and I bought a, a blank book and I kept a diary, and I still have that diary from high school, and it's full of high school thoughts, and it's so good to go back and look at that. And if he didn't say that in that speech, I wouldn't have done that. Like, such a direct thing. He said, do it. I did it, and I'm so glad I did it. And I still I still write. Uh, I don't write in a blank book like I did then. I probably should, but the it was – I mean, I have a whole book now. In fact – some of it is in my book, Mean Dads for a Better America. There's many passages that I took directly from the diary that this athlete told me to get. You know, it's so impressionable, right, in high school and whatnot. And uh, I hope we do have some people listening that are a little younger than others because I, I just, I do. I think the mentors are, I mean, think about that mentor in your in your life and the advice that you got, you know, whether he was a longtime mentor or not, but that vice principal gives it advice. I had a challenge from my vice principal that kind of changed the trajectory of my life. And then, yeah, an athlete, simple comment. Yeah, write down everything. I mean, 
That makes great sense. If it works for you, great, do it. If it doesn't work for you, yeah, move on. You yeah. know, but I think that's great. Tom Shalou, thanks for joining us on the Jason House podcast. Very generous with your time. Uh, we look forward to, to seeing you and hosting you in uh, in Utah. I know you're going to have a great and uh, rambunctious crowd. Lots of people because it's almost sold out. Like literally, there's like seven seats left. So that's great. Um, but uh, we love your work on on Fox and seeing you on the different shows and uh, the quiz show. I had fun doing the quiz show. I actually did pretty well in the quiz show, as you I did. recall. Annoyingly well, because I like to follow people <laughs> up, but you did pretty well. <laughs> I think I missed the one question, which is still bugging me. So um, I don't know how to atone for that one miss, but I really did have fun. And you know, you're just a good, fun, happy person. And I loved your book, Mean Dads. That was just really, really, it just touched uh, touched me and just sung along because I could totally relate to what you were talking about and it was it was really well done so that's great thank you uh, uh, thanks again for joining us on the Jason house podcast do appreciate it thanks a lot see you soon oh I can't thank Tom enough Tom is such a good guy you know you meet him in person he was recently in Salt Lake City did a little stand-up there with uh with Gutfeld He's just a great, wonderful guy, and uh, thanks for him for joining us. Hope you can rate this podcast, uh, give it uh, some stars there, and subscribe to it. You also can go over to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts, and, and just uh, hope you find some others. A really good talent here at Fox, that uh, some other good podcasts out there. Anyway, we'd appreciate if you'd rate it, review it, like it, and uh, join us next week. We'll have another good, exciting guest. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this has been... Jason in the house. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.